Matthew twenty-eight sixteen to 20 hear the word of the Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When I was baptized, when I was in my last year of high school, I guess I was about 18 years old, I didn't understand really much about baptism, and I also didn't value baptism or church membership, because I was, as I described to you last week, one of those maybe typical Westerners who saw my faith as an individual thing. I had my personal relationship with Jesus And I saw baptism and church membership as kind of a nice additional add-on. So I don't think I even told my parents that I was getting baptized. I didn't invite them to come to my baptism. I didn't tell my friends. I didn't invite them. If I were doing it now, I would invite everybody I know to, to come to be there for my baptism. But I didn't appreciate it. But I appreciate it now. I love my baptism now. I love my church membership. And I love the Lord's Supper because I have come to appreciate, really, the role that they play in Scripture. However, I do not like to preach about baptism. In fact, I don't like to preach about any topic whatsoever. I like to preach texts of Scripture. As you know, that normally what I do is I take a section of Scripture and I go through it. But to preach about baptism, there is no one text that enables me to do that. And so I am forced to do something that I normally don't do in the pulpit, and that is read a number of different texts to try to put together what the New Testament teaches about baptism. So today, I may sound more like a a teacher or a professor than I do like a preacher, but I hope that it will be not only instructive, but also encouraging to you. But the, the other reason I don't like to preach about baptism is because of what we have done to baptism. Um, and, and what we've done to it is we've understood it in different ways. And I suppose that's inevitable when there are various humans involved. Uh, but Paul says that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. But unfortunately, at this stage in church history, we have various understandings of baptism. And it's tragic that people have been persecuted over their understanding of baptism. People even perished because of their understanding of baptism. And that goes exactly against what baptism is supposed to be about. It is supposed to be a unifying activity, a unifying act, but we have turned it into something that is divisive among Christians. And so what can we do? We didn't, we didn't start the divisions, but at this stage in church history... Uh, How should we handle the question of baptism and the inevitable controversies that it raises? The best we can do, and this is what I'll try to do today and recommend that you do, is study the scripture so that we can understand as best we can the meaning of baptism. And then, once we've come to our conclusion about it, be as charitable as we can be 
and as unifying as we can be with those who have other biblically defensible positions. Now, the text I read here is from what we call the Great Commission. And we see there the the role of baptism, how it functions. We see that Jesus said, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. That is, as we have seen more than once, that's the mission of the church. And the only mission of the church, that's what the church does. We are here to make disciples. And then it says, how do we make disciples? And there are two activities that are, in, that are involved in making disciples. One is baptizing, and the other is teaching. Go make disciples, baptizing and teaching. And so we're going to ask a few questions about baptism and try to look at, at texts that talk about, uh, try to answer these questions. One is the meaning of baptism. The other is the candidates for baptism. Who should be baptized? And then the third is the mode of baptism. How do we, how do we do it? Well, we start with the, the problem of having a Greek word that the church never bothered to translate. Baptism is not originally a, uh, an English word, or to baptize is not an English word. It's a Greek word. And when it refers to the act or the ordinance, or the sacrament that Jesus commanded His church, we don't translate it in the Scripture. We just leave the Greek word there, to baptize or baptism. And so there are two nouns and one verb that are translated baptism or to baptize. But when we look at that word in ancient literature, outside of the Bible, to see how that word is used, or that group of words is used, we find that outside the Bible, to baptize means to dip, to immerse, to wash, to plunge, to sink, to drench, to overwhelm, to soak. And so it's used in a number of different ways. And in the few instances in the New Testament where the word to baptize is used, not referring to the Christian ordinance, but referring to Jewish practices, we translate it washing. And this is instructive, because if we go to Mark chapter 4, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, we find this controversy about washing before eating. And Mark 7 says now, uh, verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they baptize themselves. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the baptism of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So I read it in a way that's probably surprising to you. But that's the word, that's the verb and the noun that we normally translate as baptize. And so how are they translated here? To wash, or washings. And we find a similar thing in Luke chapter 11, uh, in verse 37 and 38. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first baptize himself before dinner, wash himself before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Now what is instructive about these texts? What's instructive is that the word that we translate to baptized is being used in the context of washing or cleansing. And in addition, we find 
in one instance that may refer to baptism, the word to baptize isn't used at all. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22, it talks about that we were washed with water and it uses another word, not the word that we use uh, for baptism. And then one other place, uh, Christian, uh, that does refer to Christian baptism when Paul was to be baptized, Ananias said to him, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So in the Bible, we find the word that we translate to baptize in the context used synonymously with washing. So, all that is to say that this word means to wash. Big surprise there, right? Applying water to the body, what does it do? It washes. But that's not all it signifies. It's actually a very rich uh, concept in the scripture because the main idea is washing but Christian baptism the ordinance of Christian baptism is associated with at least nine other concepts in the New Testament and I'll just go over those and you can look at the verses later it is connected with as we saw in, in Acts chapter 2 with the reception of the Holy Spirit Uh, You will be baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire. And water baptism is associated with that as well. It is associated with repentance. We saw that last week. Peter said, repent and be baptized. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It is, as we saw last week, the rite of initiation into the church. When someone is baptized, that person is added to a local church. Acts 2.41, 1 Corinthians 12.13, where Paul says you were baptized into one body. It also has to do with belief in Jesus. Those who believed were baptized. Uh, The fifth signification is it is the fulfillment of circumcision in the Old Testament, Colossians 2, 11 and 12. It signifies our death and resurrection with Jesus, uh, uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Colossians chapter 2, 12. It signifies being clothed with Christ. Paul says those of you who have been baptized have put on Christ. It signifies our unity with other Christians. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. And it signifies in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, salvation. So if somebody asks you, what does baptism mean? You say, how much time do you have? Then you can say, baptism means washing. But then you could also say, but there are at least nine other significations that that baptism is related to. Now, it's a mistake, it's a mistake, and, and some fall into this error to think that all of these benefits, all of these blessings are automatically applied when baptism with water is applied. That, that's one side, that's one error, to think that it's just an automatic, almost magical sort of rite, miraculous rite, that conveys all of these things at once. But it's also a mistake on the other side, and that's the mistake that I committed, even when I was being baptized, of looking down on, despising the importance and the effectiveness of baptism. Wedding rings, as many of us who are married wear, wedding rings do not in and of themselves make us married. However, at the same time, they are signs and they are seals of the fact that we belong to someone else. 
And they are a message to the world that we belong to someone else. And they are a message to us as well. A reminder to us that we are not our own, but we belong to our spouse. Now, in fact, in some vows, in some ring vows in weddings, it it points out that fact. There are vows that say, this ring is the sign of the covenant that we are making here. And there's also, maybe you've heard this older vow, where the husband and wife exchange rings, and they say, with this ring, I thee wed. And what are they saying? They're saying, by means of this ring, I am marrying you. And so there we see the the efficacy of the ring. Now, it, it doesn't in and of itself make us belong to another person. But it does seal that, it signifies that, and in some sense, it makes it happen. It makes it happen. And we can look at baptism that way. That's, there may be a better illustration of baptism, but that's the, the best one that I've come up with, and, and one that I wear on my finger uh, basically every day. Now, this is, this is the more or less uncontroversial part about baptism. When we ask the question... Who should be baptized? Now we're getting into a trickier question that has divided Christians over over the centuries. Most Christians, I, I, I originally put all Christians, but then I had to back off. Most Christians agree that those who repent and believe should be baptized once and once only. But then I started thinking about some groups like Quakers, the Friends, who have foregone baptism completely. And they say, no, uh, water baptism is not something that we should do at all. And then there are those that I've found around here, since I've gotten back to the States, that think that Christians, believers, can be baptized more than once. And so that's why I say most Christians agree that those who repent and believe should be baptized once. Others, like our church, think that, Christian, uh, that children of believers also should be baptized. Now, um, throughout Christian history, that has been the majority position, and I would suppose is the majority position even today among, among churches that consider themselves Christian churches. Uh, however, however, probably in our context, in American evangelical Christianity, it's a minority position. Um, where people would say, the majority would say, no, uh, only believers should be baptized, their children should not be baptized. And sometimes there is kind of shock when, when people find out that they have another position on this. There are those who are shocked that, that, that parents would not have their children baptized, and then they're shocked uh, by others that they would have them baptized. So let me do this. What I'm going to do is present the arguments, because in our church, we recognize that as something that we should do, baptize our children, and I want to explain why we do that. One argument in favor of baptizing children of believers is the parallel that I already mentioned. The parallel between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. If you go to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a complicated argument here. But Paul says, in him, that is in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, Paul is doing a number of things here. He says, you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision as you were included in the circumcision of Christ, the cutting off of Christ, and that was effected as you were baptized and buried and so on. So, uh, apart from the details here, there is a, a consensus that what this verse is pointing at is that baptism is the replacement of the fulfillment of circumcision in the Old Testament. And we already saw in Genesis chapter 17, who should be circumcised? Well, believers should be circumcised and their male children. And so that's the, that's the inertia we have from the Old Testament. And there's that covenant formula that we hear repeated over and over in the context of the Old Testament with Abraham and in the other covenants as well. This is for you and for your children. This is for you and for your children. And then we saw last week, when Peter gets up and he preaches at the day of Pentecost to a group of Jews, he said, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, for this pro- and you will receive the Holy Spirit, for this promise is for you. And then he uses the covenant formula, and for your children. And then he adds to that, and for those who are far off, which is, people like us, the Gentiles. So rather than narrowing the focus, he expands the focus to include not only Jews, but also Gentiles. So that's the first argument, the parallel between circumcision and baptism. The second argument in favor of baptizing children of believers is the place that Jesus and the apostles assigned to children, assigned to children, and particularly to children of believers. There were those in Jesus' day who thought Jesus' ministry was an adult sort of thing and didn't think that children should be involved. But some parents had a different idea about that. And the parents were were trying to bring their children to Jesus, and the disciples were saying, no, 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 because they didn't think Jesus would have have time for, for little children. And Jesus sternly rebuked his disciples, and he said, let them come to me and don't forbid them, because of such is the kingdom of God. So he, he exalted their status rather than treating them as second class. And then in 1 Corinthians, that's in uh, Matthew 19, 13 to 15 and other places. In 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, Paul is talking about the situation where there is a Christian parent and a non-Christian parent. And he says that your children, the children of one Christian parent, are holy, are holy They are, what's often translated, they are saints. They are set apart for God. So that's the second argument. And the third argument, which might be kind of a surprise to some, is the example of the New Testament. Now, the example of the New Testament in general is for people to become believers and repent and be baptized. Believers' baptism. That's the the general pattern of the New Testament. But of course it is. Why? Because all of the believers in the New Testament were what? New believers. So there weren't generations of believers here. All the the believers were new believers, so of course they were the ones that were the the main ones getting baptized. But there is uh, an interesting chapter that refers to two individual parents. In one case, a mother, and in the other case, a father, who believed in Jesus, and their whole families 
were baptized, with no mention of faith in any but the mother and, in the other case, the father. So let's look at this. Let's look at this, Acts chapter 16. The first is Lydia, uh, chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. It said, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So very, very clearly it says that she believed and they were baptized. And then we find the same thing that happened later in that same episode or that same story in, in Philippi in uh, the case of the, the jailer. And in verses 30 to 34, then he brought them out. There was this earthquake. The, the prisoners were, were uh, released from their cells, although nobody went anywhere. And the jailer was about to kill himself because he thought all the prisoners escaped. And Paul said, don't do that. We're all here. And then the jailer rushed in, called for lights. Trembling, he fell down before Paul and Silas. In verse 30, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer was, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so the text in both cases is very clear. Lydia believed, the jailer believed. Now, others in the household may have believed. It says that the household was there when they were preaching to the household of the the Philippian jailer. They may have believed, but the text is silent on that. And I've heard people say, well, of course the rest of the family believed because they were baptized. That is the logical fallacy of begging the question, of assuming what you are trying to prove. The text does not say that. The text simply says, mom believed, her family was baptized, dad believed, the family was baptized. So we have at least this example, if we take it at face value, of whole families believing, or I'm sorry, whole families being baptized because one of the parents believed. That is, that is in a nutshell, uh, the argument, three lines of argument in favor of the practice in this church. But of course, children belong to whom? Well, children belong to parents, not to the church, and children belong to the Lord. So each parent is going to have to wrestle through this and make this sort of evaluation for themselves. But I I want you to take, uh, take these arguments into account as you do so. Because of, because of the, the benefits that, uh, that are involved in this this act of baptism. And of course, all parents want the best for our children and want their experience of Christ to be as robust as it can be from their earliest days. Now, we get to another question that is controversial for some, but not for me. And that is, how do we do baptism? How do we do it? And there are three modes that have uh, been practiced throughout history. Uh, There is immersing in water, 
there is pouring water over the, the candidate, and there is sprinkling water over the candidate. Which one is right? Well, um, the fact of the matter is, and I know there are those who disagree, me on, disagree with me on this, but the fact of the matter is, there is no description in the New Testament about how to do it. There is none whatsoever. There are intimations, there are associations that would lend towards one of these modes of baptizing or the other. For example, Hebrews 9, verse 10, mentions Old Testament baptisms, that's what it calls them, baptisms, the word that we use for baptism, the Greek word, and it's referring to rites in the Old Testament that were performed by sprinkling. Also, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, which may refer to baptism or may not, I think it does, it doesn't even use the word baptism, but it puts it in parallel with sprinkling. Your consciences have been sprinkled clean and your bodies have been washed with water. And I think that's a reference to baptism in parallel with the sprinkling clean of our consciences. That's the biblical argument for sprinkling. For pouring, the biblical argument is Pentecost. We know that there was one baptism that was definitely performed by pouring. And that was the baptism in the Spirit. And that's what Peter said. Joel said this, in the last days, God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh, and that's what He did. So the baptism in the Spirit was by pouring, figuratively. And so, uh, baptism by pouring water symbolizes that. And then, uh, one of the associations is being buried with Christ in baptism. And obviously, of the different modes, the one that that most clearly communicates that idea is to be uh, immersed in water and brought back out, uh, death and resurrection. So, um, I've done it all three ways, and uh, we are fine with any of them. It is washing with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in order to see what I prefer, you'll need to come on December 6th, and to see what we do in the parking lot. Now, a final question. A final question. Is baptism necessary? And that depends on what you mean by necessary. If you mean, is it possible, is it possible for a person to be a real Christian and to have eternal life without being baptized? We have to admit the possibility because there is one example and one only in the New Testament. And that is the thief on the cross. But clearly, clearly, the thief on the cross was in an exceptional situation. He came to faith in Christ really at the last moment, and there was no possibility. But apart from him, there is no other example. But we have to say that, that yes, it is possible. But if we ask the question, is it necessary? We can also say, well, of course. Jesus commanded us to do it. And anything that Jesus commanded us to do is, for Christians, necessary. Yes, of course. And then I ask the question, I turn it around. If you are a believer in Christ why wouldn't you be baptized? Why wouldn't you? Because of the fact that Jesus told you to, and because of all of the rich associations that it, it communicates and seals to us. I have done a number of weddings, 
as a pastor over the 30-some years that I've been a pastor. And I think in all of the weddings, I think in all of them, they had wedding bands, and they exchanged the wedding rings. And I have yet to be in a wedding where they are about to give the, the, this ring of precious metal one to the other, and the spouse puts up an objection and says, Nah, that, that's not necessary. We, we don't need that to be married. I've never seen that happen. I have always seen people receive these rings with, with great delight and for the rest of their lives to guard them and to wear them with pride and with devotion and to, and to make sure that they, they don't get lost or stolen. And if they do, to grieve over their loss for the rest of their lives because of, of this seal and this sign. I have seen that we've treated it that way. And that's how baptism can be. We look at our, our wedding ring, and no matter what's going on in my life, no matter how I may be feeling, no matter how our circumstances might be, I can look down and I can say, I am a married man. I belong to Sandy. And this communicates to me her love constantly. That's how baptism functions. Why wouldn't we want to have baptism? Something that we can look on as Christians and say, I belong to someone else no matter what I may be feeling, no matter what may be happening in my life. And I have to say now, even though I didn't appreciate my baptism when it happened, I love it now. Because I look back on that day and I can say, I belong to Jesus And I know that He loves me because His church has applied to me this sign and this seal of His love. And it reminds me of God's love for me that He loved me so much, that He loved me so much that He sent His Son, Jesus, and that Jesus loves me so much that He gave His life for me. And He rose from the dead for me that I might have forgiveness of my sins and I might have eternal life. And then not only does He do that, but He says to me, Larry, I give you this ring. I give you this symbol. I place my sign upon you. You are mine. And no matter what happens in my life, that's the message of my baptism. That I belong to Jesus. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that You have given us sensible signs, things that we can see and hear and taste and touch. And I I thank You for the sensible sign of of baptism. And I didn't appreciate it. I, I don't even think I kept my baptism certificate. I don't know where it is because I didn't think much. But now I delight in the fact that I am a baptized man that You have placed Your sign upon me, even me, and You have called me Your own. And I pray for those of us who are baptized, that we would, as the old language says, improve upon our baptism by delighting in it and by living according to it. And by those who are not yet baptized, that they too, through faith in Jesus, if they are of that age, or if they are being presented by their parents, that they would have this sign applied to them so that they, throughout the rest of their lives, would know that they belong to Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.